Legendary drummer Stuart Copeland is the guest on the Goldmine Magazine podcast. Hello, everyone. This is editor Patrick Prince, and welcome back to the Goldmine Magazine podcast. Stuart Copeland will talk to us today, and he has a new documentary released, and it's called Everyone Stares. It's a documentary about seeing the police through the eyes of Stuart as he toured from 1978 to the height of their popularity with a Super 8 movie camera. And it's quite a different uh, approach, and it's almost as if you're in the band, kind of, touring on stage, back in hotels, everything. And you get to see the the three of them, their camaraderie, and, and even when there was creative tension. We'll even bring up the fact that uh, his single, as the pseudonym Clark Kent, was worth some money, is worth some money as a as a piece of vinyl on the market. And he will also talk about the possibility of the police having another reunion tour. Okay, we'll be right back with Stuart after this message from CygnusRadio.com. Hey, I'm Ronald Webb, and this is Patrick Prince. And together we host the Goldmine Radio Hour, the show that features the latest issue of Goldmine. The Music Collector's Magazine. Tune in Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on CygnusRadio.com. Stuart? Speaking. Hi, how you doing? It's Pat Prince at Goldmine. Very good. Good to meet you, man. How nice are you? Nice to meet you. Anyway, I, I just got the advance, and I enjoyed watching Everyone Stares. Oh, uh, good. Not just as a fan that missed a lot of the early days of the band, because um, uh, to me it was filmed at a time, you know, through you, when there was more of a, a mystique to every band, you know? There was... Fans never really got to see the stuff behind the scenes, so this was just like a real look at what it was like then. I mean, today... Well, it's, it's different from your usual rock dock, um, yes. which is the camera's over here and the band is over there. In this case, the camera is in the band. It's a it's a first-person shooter. Yes. You know, you it's actually what it's like. You know, your name is Stuart when you watch this piece, and you got Andy shouting at you, and, you know, you're a member of the band. <laughs> But what I was talking about is like today, nothing is hidden with social media. I mean, That's every true. every band, it's like everything is. Th- there's no mystique whatsoever to the band. And well, I think that the mystique is normally applied by the fans themselves. Yes. And um, the more they get, the more they apply mystique to it. It seems. I have no idea. I'm just making this um, uh, anthropological socio babble up as we speak. <laughs> I mean, could you picture yourself today instead of doing it back then with an well, iPhone? Those weren't selfies. I was, it, it was a very different. I guess it was the same thing. Uh, the selfie culture. I'm not so sure what that's all about. People taking pictures of themselves or their dinner. Not sure where that came from. But the part that I do get is posting online cool stuff that happens, and I still do that. Yeah. Um, but back in the day, I had I got this movie camera when we were still pretty broke, but and we were still at a very early level. So it was more of a tourist thing. Of, I just wanted to scrape this adventure off and put it in my pocket. Right. Which is what the shooting it was all about. I, this is so incredible. I want to get some of this. It's sort of like... I want to doggy bag this. 
Right. And you saved it all these years. Yeah. Well, the other thing was that <clears throat> I couldn't cut it at the time because Super 8 has no negative, and therefore every time you run it through a projector, you are scratching it. Right. And it deteriorates. And editing it is impossible because you lose frames and there's no undo. This was shot decades before computers. Mm-hmm. In fact, I realized it was scratching it, so I put it in the shoeboxes and forgot all about it until they did invent computers. Right. And when they had invented not only computers, but an application called Final Cut Pro yes. and cheap memory, uh, then I could... I was actually busy cutting movies of my children playing on the beach. Yeah. And I remember, wait a minute, I got that cool, that footage I shot. I wonder what that looks like. So I started telecinning in hope. This turned into the home movie from hell. I had so much fun making it. It was really a home movie. Until Les Claypool, I said it to him. He said, yeah, cool, you should put, send that off to Sundance. And right there when we were on the phone, I did the application to Sundance and forgot about it again. And then on the night before Thanksgiving, I get a call from the festival saying, you're in, please bring your movie to the festival. Wow. And that changed everything. Suddenly my little hobby, my little toy at home that I've been playing with became a real thing out into the world. And something that shouldn't have surprised me, but did, was that not only is my toy out into the world, but it's called The Police. And the police, guess what? It's still a thing. Yes, of course. And I had forgotten about it for about 20 years because I was the flinty-eyed <clears throat> for-hire film composer. Mm. And the you know being a rock star is not a plus when going in for a meeting at Paramount about scoring a film. The last thing they want is a rock star. They want somebody who's going to do what the director needs. And so that's what I did. I was very happy with that job. And the, the whole rock star thing receded off into the distance, and I forgot all about it. And similarly, my two colleagues had gotten on with their lives and forgotten about it. And so when the Super 8 came out, and suddenly it's a police thing, and the level of interest in it was absolutely astounding. The day after Thanksgiving weekend, the first Monday, my... Email. I came in and I had every studio, every agent, every label, every uh, newspaper, cable network. It, it, it was. It was. I should have taken a picture of it. Just my my email chain. That when I got to my desk in the morning, and <laughs> when it did open at Sundance, the same kind of thing happened. Where the theater was packed, folks went nuts. Uh, Sting was in town but he had a premiere of a film that he was producing, you know, just across the street. So he was, he watched that. But after the show, the three of us were there in, uh, in a restaurant. Andy came and saw, saw the movie. And as you may have noticed, he's kind of the star of the movie. Um, that shot of the three blonde heads resounded around the world with such noise and impact. It did kind of make us look at each other and go, geez, who would have thunk? Right. After 20 years, it's still a thing. Well, the music is timeless. You know, it doesn't sound dated like some of the, you know, you can listen to some 50s and 60s music. It certainly sounds dated. 70s music. The music is not, is timeless. Um, and it's still, it's popular among, you know, in this new generations. Well, that's the really weird part. None of us expect. 
expected that. Not the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, or yeah. us. And I've talked to all the, all those people from generations before me. None of us had this idea right. of the um, legacy band. Right. They just it just wasn't. It, you know, the music was made quickly to be consumed quickly. It was fast music and fat, like fast food, right. like a sandwich. Eat it, watch it go up and down the charts, and forget it. Uh, it was sort of the culture and the atmosphere in which all that music was made. But for it to return, for our children to be rediscovering Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, the police, you know, really was unexpected. Well, I think yeah. a lot... lot... When, we, so when the film hit Sundance and we looked at each other and there's this picture, which was, then when we did the tour, the next stage was quite profound as well, which is when we played those songs to the first audiences who've been waiting 30 years to see these songs, the emotional impact of those songs, which whether you like them or not, they've been on the airways and you've lived your lives listening to them either voluntarily or not. They're kind of ingrained, so they have an emotional power. Yes, so when is. the three of us go out and play those songs, it's got a strong emotional charge. Well, we can go back to social media. I think social media helps spread um, music and stuff that maybe generations of today never could get a chance to if, if social media or the Internet was not around. Well, I did get burned because it was very early days of... of um, social media. The internet was out there, mm. um, but I, it, it hadn't started to cross-pollinate, mm. or at least it, it had, and I learned, because one night, after, after like the third show we played of our reunion tour, we had one of those shows. Every band does. It's absolutely what happens to every single band, you know. You're only as good as your last show. Oh, I, I think I heard you know, about if this. If the show wasn't better than the night before, it sucked. <laughs> and so we had that third show the tour where it just kind of everything went wrong, and it was like, oh, God. And I shared this point of view, yeah. uh, what I thought was a tongue-in-cheek, loving uh, little note, uh, with my tiny little website, which had, I don't know, probably less than 100 people on the chat line there. Um, tiny, obscure little thing, Italian. And, um, boy, that was a shot heard around the world. It got picked up. Some Reuters guy checked it out, picked it up, put it out. Uh, pretty soon, I am in the doghouse, and the rest of the band are looking at me like I, you know, just burnt down the, uh, the flagpole. And that was over 10 years ago. Now, yeah. here we are in 2019. It's like that police song, Too Much Information. There's there you go. <laughs> it's overwhelming. Um, well, the thing was that it was totally tongue in cheek. It was, it was, right. You know, it was not pejorative at all. But of course, the tabloids got hold of it and turned it into whatever you like. Of course, they do. Yep. And the film also shows a great bond between members. You know, and the band's existence. You know, great camaraderie. I really enjoyed it with the sense of humor. Um, I know. In the end, you show it, the creative tension it got there. But in the beginning, it, it was great seeing you guys horse around. And, yeah, uh, well, we did do it. We still do. We always have, in fact. Our disagreements are entirely musical, which yeah. is 
strange. You know, people think that that's the one thing we would agree about, but no, that's the one thing that we disagree about. The purpose of music in our lives is different for all three of us. Therefore, when we're making music, we have completely clashing views of what music we should make. Therefore, we get a multifaceted, multidimensional band rather than three guys who grew up in the same town who love the same music. Right. And it's sort of what makes it work, but also what makes it hell. But socially, we've always been very close, as you can see in the movie. Well, that's the yeah. Well, that's the great dilemma of an artist, right? Uh, collaborating sometimes, you know. Well, and we, we would shout and scream. Yeah, the, the classic scenario is we shout and scream all the way through rehearsals, and you know, by the time we've gotten into dinner. It's that we're laughing and joking and having our yeah. usual banter and camaraderie. But you do mention that in the movie. At one point, it felt you you made a comment that it's getting lonely in this band. Um, well, yes, because the rest of the world was beckoning outside. Yes. There were opportunities. I got a chance to go score a movie with Francis Ford Coppola. And with no studio, just, yeah. you know, no negotiation, no arguments, no debate. I could just follow my instincts. And it was just such a glorious artistic creative experience that it really made me squint at the band experience, right. which was that um, we had great material, great musicians to work with, but it was such a struggle. Everything was such a struggle. And we, at the same time as we appreciated it, that there was value in that struggle, it was still a struggle. And we were surrounded by a golden cage, a corporation for whom the idea of going off and doing a film score was not a great idea. Mm -hmm. A much better idea is to stay within the fold and do another police album and another police tour. And so it wasn't until the three of us agreed amongst ourselves to burn down the golden cage, to melt down the golden cage, that we were able to escape from the clutches of the corporation. And <laughs> it was a very good thing that we did because we quit at the apex. We never saw the other side of the parabola. Um, and when we picked it up 30 years later, it was still there, pristine. Well, Sting commented that it was the 83 Shea Stadium concert. That was, I think it was Synchronicity Tour. So uh, I missed that last part. It was the 83... Synchronicity Tour at Shea Stadium, where he said that was like reaching Mount Everest. Yeah, that was, that was. That was kind of like, okay... We got this. We had been, you know. How can you do any the better? The film finishes is not to, not over. It's, like, we have one more hit album and stadium tour after the film finishes. You know, the film takes us up to us festival and our, and our first uh, stadium right. shows. You know, and we're rolling in money like Ebenezer Scrooge in the plane. Yes. Uh, the merch money. And... That was sort of, that was the journey. Then we did actually go through another round of, um, of, of touring an album and so on, which would have been the same shots over again. And yeah. I, by that time, actually I put the camera down. One time we were in a Learjet and the pilot was doing barrel rolls. Yeah. And for some reason I was trying to film barrel rolls from inside a Learjet, which made me, realize the penny dropped that wait a minute this is absurd get this camera out of your face and live life instead of trying to film it well that's that's another thing the the film brings up that the hardest thing with fame is that you can lose touch and connection with the the real world and 
Yes, you said so. yourself you couldn't remember buying groceries or driving your own car. There and you go. I hear people complain about politicians about those things. You know? <laughs> no, it's, it's true. And the difference is that politician's job is to represent people who have to do their shopping and drive their own cars. Yes. They have to understand what that life is all about so that they can represent the needs of those people. Of course they don't. Right. I, I, I all of the above. <laughs> you know, but yeah. the um, members of the band have no such uh, purpose right. in their lives, and they do get wrapped in bubble wrap. Um, your fingers are not your fingers, they belong to the tour, so please do not break them. Right. I can, I can remember um, a story about Neil Perk going uh, motorcycle riding and uh, injuring his foot. And, you know, um, everyone around him was more, uh, up, you know, afraid than he was, but it's, it's just very interesting how. Yes, that's absolutely so. Uh, I really got that in the last, on the reunion tour, where, the, you know, it's such a thing that if you want to keep your, your, your object shiny to put it on stage, you want it as shiny as possible. And you think, uh, hey, I'm just going to go grab a newspaper. No, 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 you sit there, just you sit in there, and I say, I'll get you a newspaper, what newspaper would you like? I don't want to, I want to look at the newspaper rack. Well, okay, we'll bring the newspaper rack over, you know. Okay, everybody, we're going, we're going over to the newspaper rack, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's surprising. Like uh, each each musician doesn't gain three hundred pounds just sitting there and having every, everything done for them. You know what I mean? Now, yeah. Well, the show takes care of that. The show, yeah, true, calories. true. Um, so about four years ago, Andy released a documentary can't Can't Stand Losing You, Surviving the Police, and and in it he said, unlike other bands, we weren't chasing the moment; we were making it. And that that's was that's so interesting. Poetic. Yeah, it's it is true though because you were at the time trendsetters. I mean, but you know what? I did, I, I think that's a great line, and um, I endorse it by my colleague, esteemed colleague, for his excellent film. Um, I would actually see it very differently though. That you don't so much have the sense that you are making the moment or that you are a legend because you still got to take a shit in the morning. Yes. And you're reminded constantly that in spite of your fame, you are still flesh and blood. Yes. And at times you seek to inhabit the avatar, but you can't. The avatar is an avatar, and you are flesh and blood. You get yeah. out of bed, put your pants on one leg at a time, and there's no escape from that. And sure, you can, you know, you can be invited to champagne parties in the Hollywood Hills and, you know, have a taste of that glitzy life, but still you got a headache in the morning. And still the people at that party get pretty boring, and still it's still the real world. There still is, you're not in Valhalla. You're not. That's you're true. in Los Angeles. Or you're still, you know, and the imagination, the, the making the moment, being the legend, uh, as you can see, there's three guys who are the legends, and they're just goofing off in a in a motorway cafe. It's funny how you talk about the parties because even when you go on vacation, to me at least, the best part of the vacation is getting to know the locals. You know, the everyday yeah, the people. Well, the rock band doesn't do that. <laughs> yeah. <They have> each other. <laughs> 
Well, except for those, you know, we that, that one scene in the movie where we are li- literally living a Duran Duran video. That was insane when you guys had to get in a car and move the car through a crowd of people. I think that was in England. Well, uh, the the one I'm thinking of is, you know, when we would show up in New Zealand, or in that case, uh, uh, Hawaii, yeah. and the local promoter would throw a party with him, the three of us, and every hot babe in the city. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's uh, and, and just, surreal. We'd, and generally, we'd end up going home alone because of you know the <laughs> you know the embarrassment of riches, the forest for the trees. I don't know what it is, but you know that was not a guarantee. Amazingly, being a rock, you know, the rock star in question and being at such a thing was not a guarantee. Wow, you know, so you see, that's how that's how how real uh, actually living life is. So it's so everyone stares as police through your eyes, and uh, Andy's doc was through his eyes, and I think the vision of the memories were aligned accurately, don't you think, between the two films? Uh, yeah. Um, Andy actually did enjoy his book represents his vision yes. better yes. than his film. His book is outrageous. Uh, uh, I'm amazed. I hope his kids survived reading their dad's book. God, <laughs> God, he tells it all in there. Holy moly! Um, so, I, I would, of the two things of Andy's, I would, I, or, or the police, I would go for my movie and Andy's book. Andy's well, you, book is definitely the best book of the three. He's got ten years on you, so he had more time. Well, that's true. He, has, <laughs> he lived a whole. He had a whole career before he even met us two. Right. Before he even discovered us. And pretty much, basically, you and Andy were always, always had cameras in your hands much of the time, right? I yes, mean, some... well, Sting was busy writing songs. Right. <laughs> and looking handsome. I mean, I've, photographers had told me that you guys would ask them questions about their photography gear. I've heard that several times. And uh, one guy, uh, Rob Alford, a great photographer, said he took Andy camera shopping. <laughs> That's right. Andy was—he was much more into the photography. Yes, I was not. I had a, the, the Super 8 camera was self-focusing, right. self, uh, actually, because I was so crap at pulling focus myself. Um, and it wasn't anything to do with photography or cinematography. It was all to do with the adventure that was unfolding right in my face. It was like a diary. It was sort of—it was a diary, sort of a visual yeah. diary. Yeah. And I also like the band uh, at first really enjoying themselves at record store, you know, the in-store promotions in the beginning. Yeah, which were kind of empty. But still, it was you guys were still having a, a good time, and the fans were, even though there weren't as many, they were enthusiastic. Yeah. And record stores and vinyl made a big comeback. Do you still do you still visit record stores? Not so much. No. Um. My. My. 30-something-year-old sons, they have a record player and they play vinyl. And it's an activity. <laughs> yes. It's something that they do. You, right. you put on a record. It's an experience. Or you chat with your friends and then that record finishes and then you discuss what your next record is going to be. Right. It's and communal. It's, 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 it's interesting. I've been over their house and, and observed this sort of like I used to do that when I was in college. Right. But not since. Since then, my listening has been when I'm in the car. That's when I listen <laughs> to and enjoy music. Or 
if I'm doing wiring in my studio, I'm still just a glorified roadie, basically. Well, and I love to wire up my studio. It's like a giant train set. And I listen to music then, but to actually sit down, put on a piece of music and just listen to it, if I'm not researching, checking out a player or something like that, that's just something I don't do. Well, some of your some of your singles are worth money now. The Fallout single oh, yeah. um, is collectible. Well, the color discs and so on. Well, I've seen it for hundreds of dollars. The orange and black uh, sleeve. I don't know why that's different. Maybe uh, less. Uh, there was a less press run or something. Um, yeah. And I also seen your Clark Kent um, "Don't Care" single going for hundreds of dollars in various formats. Uh, Go figure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's supposed to be such an ephemeral art. Well, it's so t- it's tangible. You know, people could collect it. It's not like an MP3. Well, right? I've also got, by the way, I've got all my diaries starting from 1968. Wow! But I've got the piece of paper, piece of paper where I had all the different band names. That's a classic, you know. Do you revisit them? Teeth. Hypochondriac, you know, <laughs> and all this list, it's a whole page and a half of, you know, it's, a, it's, it's two columns of names, and halfway down one side is uh, police with a circle around it. Well, you remain very active collaborating to this day. I mean, I, I was channel surfing the other day, which I guess is a, you know, old school, um, and he, I saw you make a guest appearance on a reality show called Storage Wars. So oh, there was. Damn. <laughs> That made me famous overnight. There was Stuart Copeland. It was like, wow. What um, the hell did you do in watching <laughs> Storage Wars? That is a good question. But you were on and there. Never mind, never mind. Uh, we can judge, but then love. <laughs> I was on Storage Wars, which I'd never even heard of that show. But this guy shows up. We had the most hilarious afternoon. And then I forgot about it. And then I was... <laughs> Actually, I was I was traveling with my daughter, looking looking at different colleges and going through obscure airports. People said, me, "Whoa, hey, you're that guy!" You know, suddenly the visibility just went up. I had no idea it was such a huge show. You're and, that and guy from I, Storage you know, Wars. Suspecting that I'm being a dad out there in the world, and then suddenly overnight uh, sensation. That is too funny. So yeah, you do, you're still doing a lot of collaborating. You you still be you still busy. I mean, you know, I think you're doing something now with Neil Peart, I, who I mentioned earlier. Is that correct? No, no, that I finished? go over and I hang out at the Bubba Cave occasionally. Last time I was there, his two buddies were there too, Alex and um, Getty. Really? And uh, we had a fun afternoon. But um, no, what I'm doing right now is a a BBC documentary. I did a show about drums for the BBC. And they liked that so much, they booked three more hours of a show called What Is Music and Why? And for that, I've just been shooting it. I'm going to shoot some more in June. I talked to Francis Coppola, Stephen Pinker, Steve Reich, Sting, Patty Hearst, wow. uh, Patty Smith, I mean, um, Bobby McFerrin. All, you know, I've been down to Mississippi getting saved. I've been holy rolling. Uh it's, that is really a fun gig. So when can, I have a thesis for what music is for, why humans are adapted to make music and respond to it uh, huh. in such a profound way. It's, you know, we think we just like it, but no, it goes way deeper than that. It's a trait that's deeply ingrained. But never mind. And, I'm making a three-hour show about all that. And, so that's what I'm doing now. But my day job is playing shows with the orchestras. 
And and when will this be out? When will this be aired? Probably February twenty twenty. Uh, well, I'll keep uh, definitely keep my uh, eyes open when I channel surf. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that would be a lot more edifying. Than uh, Storage Wars. Yes. <laughs> anyway, Sting uh, said on the reunion tour, which was 10, well, 2007, 2008, so more than 10 years ago, it was a kind of healing. But is it really going to be just a one-off, man, A reun- that, that reunion? I mean, you guys are on good terms. Why not? I mean... Well, that's a good question. Why not? There's no reason why not. Uh, it could happen. Uh, there's no reason to not do it and there's no plan to do it and guess what you can just kind of busy and guess what you can film it so you you last time we did the reunion to my son filmed it I know yeah I know and he made a really good documentary I know I know called Better Than Therapy but man if the Rolling Stones can do it the police can do it yeah sure you know and and every band it really does um, the difference is that the Rolling Stones are it uh, guys who grew up in the same town and are in that pocket, and that's sort of what they do. Right. But us three mercenaries and the police have more variety in our lives, I guess, in our yeah. musical output. In playing drums is something I like to do, but mostly this year I'm going to be writing an opera, and you know, there's all kinds of other forms of music that I get great pleasure from making, and I've got a whole thing going on. And when the police comes in, it's everything else is on hold. And the police, as we were talking earlier, it means I got to I get wrapped in bubble wrap. I can't play right. polo. I can't go skiing. And you know, and I, I, it's like I joined the army to play Roxanne, and I love playing Roxanne. It's really exciting to play Roxanne, the message in a bottle to eighty thousand people. Can't argue with that. Or hearing. Uh, Hearing Eddie Murphy. Machine. It's the whole envelope. It's the whole behemoth. The monster. The dark planet. Or hearing Eddie Murphy sing Roxanne in 48 hours. Yeah. <laughs> that must have been a trip. Yeah. Uh, but there must be, finally, there must be a favorite memory, police memory to connect with again as you were putting together this film. Was it just the early years of the excitement of what's going to happen? Are we going to be become big? Well, we had all kinds of, you know, I remember there was a lot of anxiety at the time, um, which we made up for by hijinks and laughter and camaraderie. Well, I remember this one part in the film was my favorite, where Andy's telling you, you're going too fast. And yeah, I think right. it was at the Pink well, Pop. the thing about this movie. When you watch this movie, you're in the band. <laughs> yes, I know. And you got Andy shouting at you. <laughs> But I liked it fast. That's you know because I want the music live to be different than the studio album. I, it was, yeah, well, it certainly is. Okay, man. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. Thank you, Stuart Copeland, the legendary drummer from the Police. It was great to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time for Goldmine Magazine. And readers, don't forget to pick up Goldmine at select Barnes and Noble and Books a Million stores on the newsstand. Also, go to goldminemag.com and get exclusive content, and we also have giveaways of very cool stuff. Okay, this is Patrick Prince, editor, and we will talk to you next time on the Goldmine Magazine Podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 